0: to the Development Policy Centre podcast. The changing media landscape has implications not just for journalists, but for the coverage of international issues, including those related to aid and development. In this panel from the 2018 Australasian Aid Conference, you will hear a panel of practitioners discuss the challenges facing journalists and NGO media communicators, and potential ways to help aid issues cut through a crowded, under-resourced media environment. Okay,
1: I think we'll make a start. Thanks, everyone, for choosing panel 4A. I know there's so many different things to choose from, so it's great to have you all here this morning. And I hope you've really been enjoying the conference. Um, I'd just like to start the session by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and to pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Um, So today uh, we gave this session this very sort of dramatic title of the aid apathy crisis. Just to get you all along. No, joking. <laughs> it's actually what we're going to talk about. <laughs> and, but this panel today is really about the media um, and how changes in the media over the past few years have impacted on the aid and development sector's ability to get attention on the work that it does and the issues that it thinks are important. Um, so, I guess the key question we'll be trying to address in the discussion today is how we cut through on aid and development issues in this crowded, frenetic media where Resourcing for foreign correspondents and investigative journalism is on the decline. So today's panel is going to be conversation-based. We're all just here for a nice chat. It's the first time I've sat down for an hour and a half in the past two days, <laughs> <and> it's great. <laughs> so, um, and also, I'm sure you've had enough PowerPoint already, and we've got this great <coughs> panel of practitioners here who can share their experiences. So this panel, I think, will be a really good opportunity for those of us in the sector to learn more about what journalists are experiencing right now, in the current media context. Because we do often bang on sometimes about how the media does this or that, right or wrong, when it's covering our issues or complain that it's not covering our issues. So it's a good opportunity to hear what the constraints are on the media side and to sort of work together and talk about what some of the better approaches might be. So... um... I'm going to come back to the audience quite a bit throughout the discussion because I know there's lots of practitioners in the room, here, people who are advocates, people who are in media roles at NGOs, people who would love to see their research or their projects covered. So um, definitely if you have a question or a comment, do shoot your hands up and we'll try and come back to you or um, we'll bring it into the discussion. And we've got Andrew here down the front who's our roving microphone. Just remember, live streaming, so you do have to wait for Andrew to speak. But um, we will try and bring in some audience discussion. All right, so without any further ado, I'll be um, introducing the panel. Um, I just realised I didn't introduce myself. <laughs> my name is Ashley Bettridge. I'm the Program Manager at the Development Policy Centre, and part of my role is being responsible for the Centre's outreach and communication, among various other things. Yeah. Thanks. Um, So before I moved into academic think tank life, the glamorous world that it is, (laughs) I um, worked in development communications in Indonesia and Timor-Leste, and I actually trained as a journalist. So the panel today is something, a topic that's really of close interest to me, not only because I was a frustrated journalist who didn't get to cover these really interesting (coughs) development issues that I thought we should be covering, but also because... Now, I'm often a frustrated person pitching our research to the media and being like, why don't people care about our beautiful papers? (laughs) So, um, for me, definitely very keen to have this discussion today. And we're joined by this amazing panel. So, I'll start with Nick Danziger, who many of you might have actually heard speak this week on Monday night at the Drill Hall Gallery. Um, His exhibition, Revisited, is at Drill Hall. Definitely go and see it. It is really, really worth it. Um, But if you missed the talk, Nick's a world-renowned photojournalist, documentary maker, and author. His um, photos and work have been featured worldwide. His work has toured museums and galleries internationally, and they're held in many numerous collections, including the National Portrait Gallery in London. He's won many awards for his outstanding photojournalism including from the Royal Photographic Society and the Royal Geographical Society's NESS Award in recognition of raising public understanding of contemporary social, political and environmental issues. And Nick's also the author of three books on his travels. Much of his work focuses on people facing war, poverty or disadvantage. And next to Nick, we have Jo Chandler. And we're very happy that Jo is often involved with many of our things at the Centre, including on the... she was a participant on the judging panel of the Mitchell Humanitarian Award that we gave out last night. Of course, that went to the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre. But Jo is also an award-winning Australian journalist, author, editor and educator. Last year, she took up a position as a professional expert and lecturer at the University of Melbourne's Centre for Advancing Journalism. And she's an honorary fellow at Deakin University's Contemporary Histories Research Group. She is the winner of the 2017 Walkley Award for Freelance Journalism, which is her second Walkley, and that's Australia's most prestigious journalism prize for any of our international friends and audience. Um, So Jo's work has covered a wide range of specialty areas, including science, environment, health, human rights, and of course, aid and development. And her work has appeared in media outlets across Australia and globally, so... We're really pleased to have Jo here today, and she's also chairing the next panel on health security, so do make sure you go yes. along to that one as well. Back to back, sorry Jo. It's all right, <laughs> I think. And our final panelist is Sam Belitho, did I say that right, it's Belitho? It. Belitho, sorry, I should know because you're on radio, so, <laughs> sorry. And Sam leads Care Australia's media team, and he's based here in Canberra. He has a particular focus on the organisation's work in Africa and the Pacific. He's been deployed to Iraq, South Sudan and Papua New Guinea. And before joining CARE, Sam worked as a journalist for six years across print, radio, TV and online for media organisations including ABC and Fairfax. And I used to pester Sam a lot when he worked at the Asia-Pacific newsroom in Melbourne to try and get him to do stories on our research. So thanks for that. Um, so I know um, Sam has been really busy this week because of what's happened in Tonga. So I just wanted to, um, you know, say that all of us are thinking of the people of Tonga who've been Im- impacted by Cyclone Gita, and expressing sadness at what's happened. And I hope that those impacted are getting the help that they need. So I've talked way too much already. (laughs) So let's kick this off and actually get talking about the issues at hand. So the first question that I wanted to throw to our panel um, was to ask you whether you do think there's an apathy crisis when it comes to international development or humanitarian issues. Uh, What what you think the current state of play is on that? Who would like to start? You can kick
2: (laughs) (laughs) it. Yeah, all right. I think just generally anything to do with aid and development, humanitarian crises, uh, there's very little space in any form of media except for online. I think uh, online is very different. It's avaricious. The media outlets that have them, they can't uh, put enough into it. Uh, But in a sense, that's brought a real crisis because they take everything and anything almost. And I think one of the real uh, dramas about what is happening is that although we think that we know much more and Media is easier to access. I think we're actually learning less and less about what is really happening in the world because, as we've debated before, uh, the financing isn't there to send seasoned journalists to do, as it were, real stories, to spend the time to really understand the issues. and I think it is a real crisis because I see myself as a freelancer. Uh, most media outlets, what they want today is lifestyle and celebrity. And if it, if it doesn't resonate with the home audience, if it's not about that particular country, uh, they are immediately less interested. Um, I've recently been to North Korea, for example, and what everyone wants are military pala- parades and the missiles. Well, North Korea is not going to give you access to their missile sites. And I think we've seen enough of military parades in Pyongyang that doesn't really give us any sense uh, about the country and its people. And I think that's uh, a real crisis, both that Uh, The media outlets aren't interested, and it's a crisis because now uh, most of the major news organizations uh, rely on stringers or their subscriptions to the wire services, and I don't think that's a particularly um, uh, in-depth way of of going about uh, learning about a particular location or issue.
1: How do you feel, Joe, particularly in the Australian context? What's your experience? Uh, It's interesting that Nick mentioned
3: sort of the voracious appetite of online and that there is still a presence of aid and development stories online because even in the Australian context, we don't even really have that in that we don't have um, publications, um, and I'll come back to this because I guess it gets to the heart of a lot of the crisis. We We don't have the bums on seats in terms of subscriptions and we don't have the philanthropic culture that will support... Something like the, you know, the Knight Foundation's support of a site like Undark, which is um, does some. I, I recently did a piece on um, from Nigeria on polio for them, sort of six thousand words, um, and that you know they can afford to pay me, you know, for several weeks to work on that piece. Uh, there's nobody in the Australian space, even online, that has that kind of resource. Um, in terms of the apathy. I guess what we've got is this intersection of, of of a media crisis, obviously, this complete media disruption, which, again, we'll get into some of the mechanics of that later rather than sort of you know, roll into the whole disaster now. But there is that. But the, one of the consequences of that for the audience has been um, obviously a, a lack of um, faith in media. We've obviously got fake news, we've got um, the shallowness of storytelling has come back to bite us on the bum as journalists um, in that our audiences are not engaged, the stories are not as deep, they are not as compelling, they are not as well researched, there is not time and thoughtfulness put into um, the mechanics of pulling together a beautiful piece of writing, giving it a lead and character and narrative that is going to draw the reader in. Um, and I think, too, that as readers, I mean, we're all awash in this kind of maelstrom of stuff that falls on us from a height into our phones and our devices every day. And I think that does lead to a kind of hardening of our hearts and and also maybe a, a kind of a trauma. Um, and I, I know I often feel quite traumatised just looking at the stream that comes into my feed. And um, so if somewhere in the back of my head there's an excuse that says... It's um, poor media performance, or it can't. It's possible. Maybe it's fake news. It's kind of almost a temptation to kind of grab that as a reason to kind of hide from it and not engage. Um, so I think you know there there are hardened hearts, and we have to think as practitioners about how do we then you know find innovative um, ways to kind of connect with an audience that are so exhausted by content. Um, so, and, and that challenge is occurring in an environment where there are just, no you know, so few resources to be to be having that moment of reflection.
1: Yeah, that must be something that you really grapple with as well, Sam, since you're working with CARE, but you've also been on the other side of the coin as well as a journalist. So how do, how do you see that?
4: Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's an apathy crisis because there are, there's plenty of evidence of stories that do cut through, whether it's, um, you know, the attention that Syria got after... The images of Alan Kurdi or um, some of the success that we've had um, on the East Africa food crisis, but to your point, I think compassion fatigue is the bigger issue, and I think the development sector and NGOs need to take some responsibility for that, because we're always crying wolf, you know, saying this is the worst thing since World War II, or this is the worst since Rwanda, we're always um, you know, fear-mongering, and sometimes I think the best story is the story that's not told if it's not warranted, so that when there is a big story, it can be done well and that the audience is ready to listen to it and it has impact. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if some, I think if you cover a story in minute detail every single moment, the audience is going to tune out. I think it's much better to just do one story um, that really hits the mark and that, it, that can resonate with the audience.
1: And I guess that twenty-four-hour coverage and things that we see now means that if something does happen, it can dominate the cycle for ages and ages, and you just hear the same story over and over, and the details repeated. I might do you think that might sort of actually make things make people care less, essentially?
4: Well, I think it has the potential to do both. Mm-hmm. You know, that constant stream can make people tune out, but you know, that can also be harnessed to you know create a bit of a, a moment for one particular issue.
1: Right. I wanted to ask you as well, Sam. Care, Care recently released a report called "Suffering in Silence," which is on the most underreported crises globally, and many of them have barely popped up in the Australian media, even though one of them, Typhoon Doxi in Vietnam, hit our region, a place that many Australians go on holiday. Um, you know, crises like those in Mali, Burundi, or Eritrea, we just didn't hear about. Um, so, what sort of implications does that have for an aid agency like Care in getting attention on the work that it's doing?
4: There's definitely a clear correlation between the amount of media coverage that we get and the amount of donations we get and our ability to influence big, big donors like DFAT and, and the like. There's no question. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of the time... I mean, it's easy to point the finger at the media and say they're not, they're not covering this worthy issue, but um, it's, it's very hard on the other end as well. At the moment, um, you know, I think there's a very worthy story to be told about um, the displacement crisis in the Central African Republic, but it's virtually impossible to tell that story. There's, there's no access there, and pretty much every surrounding country there's no access. So, you know, ordinarily I'd um, try and find a way to facilitate a, a media visit to the field, but it's just not possible in that case. So, yeah, there aren't always easy... Solutions.
1: Right, so access and safety and security are a real problem in getting those stories out then.
4: Yeah, I think that's the main one. And, um, you know, we were talking too about, um, you know, diminished newsrooms and the lack of resources, but from my perspective, that also presents an opportunity that um, journalists are often... Well, they appear to be more open to doing trips where aid agencies um, can help cover part of the cost of the trip or arrange the logistics where they don't have... Producers um, to yeah, be an enabling influence.
1: Right. You want to
4: jump
2: well, in I, I want to say, I mean, this is the real spiral of why conflicts don't get covered, and why many of these extremist op- uh, groups operate in these regions. So, the region that you've just talked about, Al the Al Qaeda affiliates, is one that I go to quite regularly. Um, people are not interested, even in the media, if you bring out stories. It's incredibly difficult to work in that environment. Some of the countries insist that you're protected by soldiers. So if you're an independent journalist, I particularly don't go on embeds. Um, but I, I mean, a remarkable response to that was actually in Niger, where several of those groups are operating, and the director of the hospital was saying also how all of the aid agencies have pulled out, the UN also. So petrol for ambulances have no longer existed to bring emergency cases. And his remark to all of that is, you know what we need here is a war. I mean, he saw the only solution was for a major conflict to take place to put the focus and spotlight back on that area. And that's what's really difficult for an independent journalist. There's, I mean, I sometimes do ask ICRC who particularly work in those kind of environments, but they themselves now are increasingly being restricted. They're being targeted. So what chance do we have of, of working in those kinds of environments? They've worked for decades in Afghanistan. They've recently had to reduce their staff because their staff have been attacked. And then the crisis really develops in those countries because no attention by uh, policymakers. The aid agencies suffer as well. And obviously, uh, independent journalists find it increasingly not just difficult, but dangerous.
1: Mm. I did want to speak, uh, ask you, both you and Joe, about working as freelancers and independent journalists, because there is definitely seemingly more of a shift to that in the international correspondence And um, I just wondered, you know, how do you experience that as someone trying to cover these kinds of stories, or to try and get attention on stories that you, that you think are really worthy? Like, for example, Joe, I know you've been in the Pacific a lot, and you like to go up to PNG. Um, how do you find the appetite for those stories, or the level of support for you to pursue them? Um, I'll answer that question but I think what
3: um, Sam mentioned before about um, agencies underwriting um, journalism trips these days is is obviously something that we really need to kind of dig into a bit later so we'll come back to that. Um, In terms of uh, look it's really, I've spent the last five five years as a freelancer trying to, I've sort of had two streams of um, sort of science and environment reporting which is kind of um, something I can do from my desk at Mel- in Melbourne largely and I can, um, you know, get reasonably paid if I crank the stories out at a reasonable rate. Um, so that's kind of sustainable to an extent and it's an area where, you know, there is... I've, I've got contacts and background and so I can kind of jump in and do those stories relatively efficiently and I've got the capacity to sell those to editors nationally and internationally. So that's bread and butter. But the stories I really want to tell often are about aid and development, about women in the Pacific, about sort of what I call hard-to-tell stories in hard-to-reach places. Um, And I'm really passionate about those stories, and they are vanishing because of the media disruption and the kind of, you know, the breaking of the whole media model. Um, So because... and, And there are so many consequences to that. I mean, at one level you have the, you know, 25% of Australian journalists have lost their jobs in the last five years. So I was one of those that took a redundancy to leave, um, you know, I, I can't say a secure job at Fairfax because there are so many of us that were leaving. But to try and sort of back myself to try and do, you know, keep doing the stories that I wanted to do because there was no longer really a budget left to be able to do those sorts of stories within, within the Fairfax structure... And at that stage, anyway, anyway, too, there was also in this kind of desperate frenzy to survive this sort of, um, you know, the, the, the clickbait survival strategy of give us eyeballs, any eyeballs, so here's a celebrity and here's a Kardashian and here's, you know, so here's Kylie's bum. Anything that would get, get the eyeballs on the page and cost us, you know, barely nothing to produce um, was, was sort of the strategy that was kind of frantically pursued because nobody had any kind of ideas about how they would um, stay afloat. I think that's becoming a little more sophisticated now, I hope, I trust, because I think it's seen that it's not really... You're on hiding to nothing, really. But, um, but in that culture, deciding to say, OK, well, I want to set myself up as a freelance who will at least a couple of times a year try and tell a hard-to-tell story from a hard-to-reach place. Um, the first issue you've got in our landscape is that um, there's just not that many titles that you can pitch to that are interested <laughs> Um, Again, it's a question of, you know, we've got the monthly that might take one of those stories two or three times a year. Um, They'll pay you a dollar a word for 4,000 words. There's not... And you you might spend six weeks on that project by the time you set up the logistics and then catch a plane and then transcribe hours of tape and then double-check and fact-check and edit and go through three loads of editing. So you're kind of getting the idea that you're not making a hell of a lot of money out of this process. Um, The only way that um, the other audiences, maybe something like background briefing, Um, has a budget that will pay a freelancer to do a radio documentary on a six-week cycle. So that's sort of six weeks of reasonably paid employment on one gig. Um, Again, that's probably the longest that I'm aware of that anybody has for a budget to pay for a single enterprise piece of reporting. Um, uh, once you know Fairfax Good Weekend used to take a bit of this stuff. I'm not sure it, currently what its mindset is around the stories. It takes a, it, it it will you know throw in an aid and development story now and again, but usually if it's been underwritten by some other book or you know an NGO, um, and they'll only take two thousand words and they might pay you eighty cents a word. And and again, so you're getting the drift that that you're not really in it for the money. <laughs> Um, and then beyond that, of course, you've got... They're really difficult stories to organise. Um, and you, if you don't have institutional support, you're trying to... If you're going to an unstable location, you're trying to set up systems where, you know, somebody cares and knows if you don't come back in your boat up the Fly River one night, which did happen to me once, um, and that you have kind of got your logistics in place and your safety net and you've found fixes and you've found interpreters who are independent and you've found locations where people feel safe to talk to you. All of these challenges, which as an and, and then getting a visa uh, can be very problematic, particularly if you write stories that have any impact. <laughs> um, so, logistically, as a as a freelance enterprise, you are really up against it. You've really got to ha- have a large amount of experience about how to kind of make the pieces slide in together. Maybe do two or three or four pieces out of you know find different revenue streams to kind of come in and. You know, you may have gone there to do a story about um, violence against women and then you (laughs) quietly crank out a tourism piece on the back of it to pay for it. You know, so there's really strange systems that you have to evolve. You have to be really creative you have to either have a healthy savings account or a partner willing to subsidise you
1: whilst you indulge in these That's stories. That's not good news for a single person on Valentine's Day. I know. So, <laughs> and it is. But I
3: mean, it's a really, you know, well, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not, you know, or a redundancy package, which might, you might be able to kind of leech across to support you for a few years. But all those obstacles and then the fact that there are not that many editors that are interested. I mean, The Guardian, you get a great run, but The Guardian, The Scott Trust, is—you know, they're, they're in trouble. There's yeah. not a lot of budget attached to that either. Mm,
1: and I know, Nico, on Monday night you mentioned that you had also had trouble. You were in Armenia telling a story and you hadn't been able to place it either. And that sort of proximity seemed to be one of the key factors in that view.
2: Yeah, I mean, mean, not not to say... I I think I'm one of the fortunate photojournalists that are left, but even I cannot survive just on photojournalism. And those that are surviving, we're running workshops, we're doing teaching, we're selling our prints, a whole variety of activities, but not out in the field on 100% basis for our income. And I I think a very typical um, story for me of what does take place is that I've been working now for two years on a story about isolated elderly people in Armenia, and it's often the case in many of the former Soviet states. Um, They're very dramatic pictures. Uh, I showed them to a a picture editor of a magazine that is geared towards kind of the third third, uh, age uh, group, and he was very taken by the images, but when he went to the editor, and the editor actually called me to say, well, it's not the UK. If it was the UK, it might interest us. Mm-hmm. But we are now all in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, and, and here it's an aging society. It has many issues that I believe are related. It's not the strength of the story. It's not the strength of the picture. It's just, is it in my backyard or not? And we've become more and more isolationist in every aspect of what is taking place. It's sort of, you know, if it is a picture of Niger, well, what do we care about the children in Niger? How does that relate to us? And and I think one thing that you didn't possibly mention, which I'm sure you do as well, is you apply to foundations and prize money and scholarships, anything you can. You spend a lot of your time, or at least I do, a lot of time uh, applying for funding from non-traditional sources. And they are usually swamped because obviously everyone is looking for that pot of money which often isn't very large. Um,
3: and, And on that... I can come back to it if you like, but we don't have many of those agencies here. So to do the work I've been doing over the last few years, I've applied frequently to places like the Pulitzer Centre for um, Crisis Reporting, which underwrites a lot of reporting in our region and around the world, although they tend to focus more on Africa and Central and South America. They're not as engaged in the Pacific but, and they'll provide grants of four, five, six thousand dollars American, which is enough to get, you know, reporters on the ground when they have some support from their own newsroom. But one of the obstacles you have to clear to get that money is that you are going to be reporting, um, producing stories that will run before an American audience. So in that sort of, I'm, I'm defeated at the outset of that because I'm trying to write stories that will resonate in, for an Australian audience. Um, So the Pulitzer Centre, there's several other agencies like that. Knight, um, I think Buffett, Warren Buffett, set up a huge fund to support storytelling, particularly by women storytellers and about women stories. Again, the focus is on American reporting, American production and publication and in other parts of the world. Similarly, the Europeans have some of these commissions. Um, And I can talk more about it later, but I, I I have tried several times over the last few years to sort of... Uh, get up an, an effort, a similar sort of enterprise in the Australian context that would be, operate like the Pulitzer Centre where there's a little pool of money and journalists, whether they're working for a publication or an, 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 even the ABC or an independent like me could pitch an idea a couple of times a year, an independent panel would make an assessment of the value of that pitch and throw a couple of thousand dollars at the project, and then it would be independently reported using that, with a disclaimer at the bottom of the story saying this was reported, you know, supported by the Australian Journalism Foundation. Um, the problem is there isn't really a culture, a philanthropic culture here that thinks that journalism is something that we could or should be backing. And I've gone to big philanthropists and put this case at me and they look, like, look at me like I've got two heads, you know, what support the journalists, you know. And yet the Knights and the Pulitzers have been doing that kind of thing for forever. We put submissions into the recent Senate inquiry into public interest journalism, sort of arguing the case for this. And one of the recommendations that came back um, just last week or the week before was that there should be some tax deductibility around public interest journalism... In, for not-for-profits, so I'm not quite sure even if that got up then what that means for the age or for Fairfax or for,
5: mm-hmm. you know,
3: um, and, I mean, if I'm trying to survive, am I, am I also not a not-for-profit? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but, does that
1: include a rent, like, just for mm-hmm. home office? like that?
3: But it is... It's a big issue for us that we don't have these pots of money and, and I have um, tried to talk to NGOs about rethinking, you know, OK, NGOs have all got a media budget... Should we think about, what as an experiment, if you're not happy with the kind of um, reporting st- you know, model at the moment where you take a celebrity journalist or a celebrity or, a, or whoever you can find and drop them into a situation and have them report on some, one dimension of it under your name and under your banner. I've had lots of NGOs, so no, what we really want is people to be understand how aid and development work and how complex and nuanced and difficult and the, you know, the political context... Um, to understand disease and medical research and, and all these other issues. And I've said, well, what about if you created a pool fund and you supply a pool of money that is used but, but you won't in the end have your labelling and your T-shirts and your hats on it? You'll have a story about an issue that you then have some level of engagement or response to. And, and I have to say it hasn't flown. Like, you know, everyone thinks it's a great idea and then nobody wants to do it because the competition for the donated dollar is just too hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know that the NGOs have you know, tried to pull together for the Campaign for Australian Aid, for example, and it's always a challenge to, mm-hmm. to get that kind of collaboration, I think.
2: Um, well, you know, aid agents, I was approached uh, December of 2016 for the Lake Chad Basin, so it's the area we're talking about, and then I asked about my fees, and the, the firm went silent for a bit, and it was like, oh, but there's a crisis. We need to raise 16 million U.S. dollars, but there's no money to pay the photographer. And it was even more galling, because I was called by a consultant, who I presume was on probably a pretty good salary. And, and that is, I mean, I, I don't know if you get faced by that, but a lot of humanitarian agencies expect you to do the work for nothing, and if anything, we're actually raising the money to pay for their salaries, so... Mm-hmm. That, that's also, I think, a real issue for uh, many of us who do cover aid or development mm-hmm. or emergency issues.
1: Right, well, that seems like a good point to open it up and see if anyone in the audience wants to chime in at this point. Is this something, not, not saying, like, please give our journalists money, any <laughs> funders in the room? Have a high time. <laughs> but did anyone yeah. want to jump in and ask our panel some questions about these issues so far? Yep, just up here. Do introduce yourself as well.
6: Um, hello, I'm Paul Kelly from La Trobe University. I work as a researcher. I thought the idea you mentioned before about working with NGOs was very interesting. So NGOs have budgets for communications, they have budgets for reporting. They spend a lot of money on glossy reports, particularly when they see successes sort of emerging. So I'm wondering if what the panel thinks about those kind of collaborations. I mean, NGOs are being asked to collaborate with uh, local workers in countries and divide up the labour, of who does what best. It seems like journalists have a, a lot to contribute there, maybe not on an article, but on a strategic collaboration over time so that there's a, a set of articles over time. You contribute to reporting, you contribute to articles. I don't know, but some of the things you mentioned really seem to fit to that space, so I just wouldn't mind sort of hearing what you think about it. Anyone else no? want to jump in
1: with a question? We might come back with a couple, one more. Hi, my name is Phoebe Ryan. I work for the International Planned Parenthood Federation and I'm just wondering if you have any advice on how to approach some of the more sticky subjects um, in relation to things like access to safe abortion, post-abortion care in the media, getting how to get traction on stories covering some of the less, less kosher topics, if you like. Um, it's a constant battle for us and open ears for advice. Thank you.
2: You could ask one of us to become a consultant on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did anyone else want to throw something in before we just come back and discuss those? All right, we're good for the moment. So, yeah, there's two things there. I mean, Sam, how do you... Um, I guess that comes back to what we were going to come back to in terms of how do NGOs work with journalists. Is, is that sort of model something that, that could work, or how do you engage currently? Yeah,
4: it's a tough one. I mean, for us, we've got... A very limited amount of money to spend on fundraising, admin, all those, all the things that people, the public doesn't like. That's mm-hmm. like ten percent, and so if we're going to contribute to a news outlet going somewhere to do a story, you know, it's a cost-benefit analysis. Like we're only going to support that trip if it's going to result in either donations for where we need the funds or serve some kind of advocacy objective. Um, It'd be nice to do it for the greater good, but you know, that's, we've got pretty small budgets in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Um, but I think the best trips are the ones where it's mutually beneficial. I mean, um, last year we took uh, Mark Bachelard and Kate Geraghty from Fairfax to South Sudan, and it was a story that they wanted to tell, and Fairfax has covered South Sudan extensively over the years. But they probably wouldn't have done it if they had to pay for it by themselves. So, we supported them financially to do that story and covered lots of the logistics. But, so, they got to do the story they wanted to tell, and it also um, covered part of the cost of them going to Iraq as well, where they got to do a story that didn't have anything to do with aid agencies. So, in, you know, it worked for everybody. We got our story, they got their story. It was successful. I
1: was going to go to Joe. How have you sort of experienced those relationships as well? <laughs> it's a really fraught, difficult area
3: and and I say this having I, I've been a serial offender in the sense that I, you know, I have travelled to crises with everyone from the Australian military to Afghanistan to um, I went with Burnett to Congo and um, uh, I've been to, you know, um, the Nigeria trip last year was results and UNICEF providing logistics on that um, and Every, I've, but I've knocked back a lot more than I've accepted and every one of them I've gone through a very long process beforehand of being absolutely explicit about what were the game plans, what were the rules, how much independence, if I didn't have entire ownership and that there was no expectation. I mean, in fact, if I came back and thought they'd done a crappy job that I'd be writing a story saying that this is a crappy job. Um, that So I've been through that process, but even then it becomes more complex in that we actually have different jobs, the journalists and the NGOs. And and although, and the problem is that, and there is this capture thing, and and I saw it with the military. They're very good at it, where you know they bring you into the bubble, and we're all together in this crisis, and we're and we're travelling together in convoys, and we're a little bit frightened, and we're eating together, and we're sleeping in the same tents, and um, and with NGOs or whatever, you 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 end up sort of in this bubble where you might have huge admiration for the people that are doing incredible work, but you actually need to try and maintain a separateness because in the end you need to be far enough apart to be able to tell the story what you actually see and to not have that tainted by the relationship. And as a much younger reporter, I had an incident on a trip where I observed something that I have regretted ever since that I did not make a call to find out more about that and possibly blow a whistle on it. And I think that was inexperience, and if it happened again, I wouldn't do it. But now what we're talking about are so many reporters who'll never get layering layering of experience and who might only ever do one trip to South Sudan or Papua New Guinea, um, or maybe two, and they'll parachute in, and they'll see this one highly organised media opportunity, which is usually focused, not inappropriately, for, for, for the purposes of the NGO, on solutions, and not necessarily on the problems. Yeah. And there's so many constraints. Um, I'm blowing out your sound things. Right. I need to be quiet. Um, but things like even accessing independent interpreters when you're in those situations. And, you know, I've had situations where I'm trying to talk to women in Afghanistan and they're giving me a male in a uniform to do um, the interpreting. No, or Aboriginal stories in Ruta Julu, even when I was working for The Age, I couldn't persuade them to pay for an independent... Um, interpreter and I was sort of sitting in the middle of this what was clearly a kind of a cultural and social sort of meltdown getting a particular perspective through a particular group of powerful men. Um, Papua New Guinea it happens all the time as well so that I don't see how we don't use this money um, and this support anymore because as you say there's no budget or inclination to tell to you know it's interesting that they can still send reporters to Olympics, but I shouldn't say that because <laughs> I'm married to one of those. But um, um, but there is a budget for for things that when they need to find it, they can find it. Um, but prioritising their stories is not something that, that, that they tend to do. So if we want to, as reporters, do them, we will end up going with agencies. But I think we need to be doing a lot more thinking as an industry and as NGOs about how we manage that and also how we train the next generation of journalists who may not do it too often to kind of have their heads on and be thinking about it. Um, there was a really powerful book, controversial book written by um, Linda Polman, a Dutch journalist, um, called The Crisis Caravan a few years ago, which caused a bit of a stir, And um, but it was mainly about her experiences in Africa and working with NGOs, and, and one of the stories in that, which has become sort of... Um, um, sort of a lesson in, in what, can, when it goes hideously wrong, how wrong it can go, which was about what happened in GOMA um, and the misreporting that occurred around that and, and how really in the end it was the, the journalists sort of were captured with the agencies and, and the story they told was just so wrong-footed and, and they all were kind of caught in this bubble of, of, of kind of convenience reporting and not having the facility to go outside the bubble and see what was actually happening.
1: That's I think that tension between journalism and comms is something that those of us who've jumped fence also kind of understand as well. Um, but I know you wanted to chime in on well, that. I
2: mean, there. I've been very fortunate because a lot of the work I do is advocacy work. So uh, in 2001, uh, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, asked me to do work on a project about the effects of war on women. And I was allowed more or less completely free reign even more surprising because in Afghanistan, for example, which I've been traveling to for 30 years, I was allowed to work with MSF in Sierra Leone with Kupi. They didn't once. It took a bit of time. I don't think in, uh, there were 11 short films based on the photography. They never. We didn't have a Red Cross in any of the pictures. Um, but it's a wealthy agency, so to speak, compared to many others. It was for an advocacy project. So they were genuinely there to highlight the issues, the vulnerabilities of a particular section of the population. I wanted to go back, similar to the exhibition that's on uh, at the moment at Drill Hall. I wanted to go back and refine the women. Well, it wasn't on their agenda. I started refining the women. How did I do that? I went to magazines, L Magazine, for example, Women's Issues. They don't uh, do that kind of uh, work anymore, publish it. But I was able to start up again. They saw the power of going back to revisit people. I'm hoping potentially that 20 years on, they might send me back again. So you're fortunate if you can work on something that's advocacy. Because other NGOs, what they need is you know, the smiling kids, because they want to raise money, and they don't think you, know, you can raise money if the kids aren't smiling. Uh, I think there's all sorts of issues around that as well. So I think it depends which agency you're working with. I've just recently been working on a a project, well two years ago I started with WHO uh, for people who uh, use hard drugs and uh, it was very difficult working uh, with them because they had a certain image. In fact, they didn't want me in the end when they started seeing the pictures of uh, faces of people. They said that uh, they couldn't give informed consent There were a variety of issues. I said these people have come forward. It's been very clearly spelt out and we had a lot of arguments and debate over that They've given up on the project and UNODC have taken it up, and I feel there are holes in the project, but they know the way I'm pushing, they like to highlight the treatment and the positive effects of, for example, uh, methadone treatment, but I think they understand my independence. I work with people locally who independent of uh, the UN agencies sometimes. Um, and it was quite amusing because this time again I I want to make sure people not only give informed consent but sign it one of the men when I said you're quite happy to have your picture taken and he said why wouldn't I be I really want to explain to people how my life has has been ruined by uh, using heroin and I said but you know your picture will be published possibly in an exhibition he said but my photograph is in every police station in Russia and Kazakhstan (laughs) so I'm going to go back with that to WHO and
1: Think use that's that. informed consent um, that seems like a good spot oh, I was going to say that seems like a good spot just to jump to this question about um, tricky sticky topics like obviously drug use is, it would be one but also reproductive health I think you've covered done stories on that Joe as well um, are they particularly hard to get into the news or what sort of advice would you give to someone like that Krishna
3: um, yeah Reproductive health really hard to get in. Abortion rights is really hard to get in. I've got to sort of, I guess, you, you're always trying to find a case that will stand out. I, I did one on um, in Bougainville a little while ago because it was a case where a woman had been jailed for having an abortion under PNG law, and so that then sort of teased out lots of the issues around the fact that she lived in a community where she had no access to um, contraception and... Um, Oh, thank you but, so it 's a case like that. I was able to go to the editor and say this woman 's in jail and, and and this allows us to sort of look at this whole landscape and so that was compelling enough for that editor, who happened to be a female to say okay i 'll take that story if you can get yourself there." And they actually couldn 't afford to get me there. I was in Moresby for something else, and so I sort of you know managed to sort of do that on the fly as i as I went there but often stupid, cheesy things. I, I used to exploit Mother's Day every day, every year to construct a story around maternal health or maternal deaths and and try and use that as sort of um, a device when people were having, you know, their sort of cheesy Maya moment about what motherhood was to kind of flip that right over and talk about reproductive rights and maternal death rates on our doorstep and, and to try and sort of, you know, dig into that. So I'd, I'd rifle back through pictures we'd taken of the midwifery programs that were operating then in PNG and sort of, you know, positive story, we're doing something good here, but what is the problem? And and so I'd sort of dust those off at every opportunity. So sometimes you just kind of have to be a slave to the to those sort of cheesy cycles and just, you know, work them for all, all you can. Um, and th- there's another element which I'm a discomforted by, but you kind of have to go there We um, Often you need the character who's going to take people into one of these landscapes that is compelling and that people connect with. And, I mean, I spent years trying to write stories about the maternal death rates in Papua New Guinea, thinking that on their merits we would see that that was a compelling story, but often people's eyes glazed over. So then I heard this story about this knockabout Australian... um, Carpenter, who at age 40 had decided had a moment in, 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 in the bush in PNG and decided he would become an obstetrician. And 15 years later, he's, well now he's flying a plane around Milne Bay, you know, sort of doing maternal um, uh, rescues, literally. Um, so Barry Kirby, and, and he ended up becoming... Um, he gave an address at the National Press Club and there's been an ABC documentary done on him. And he's an extraordinary man. In some ways, I kind of don't like to do the White Knight story um, and, and I kind of cringe at it, but there's often that's the only way to get an editor to help you. And, and then as readers, it helps them into this landscape. They're following someone like them or someone they can identify with. So the heroic nun, um, or the um, you know the doctor, the, the nurse that's someone from our culture that we identify with—and then we put them into that reality. Um, it's kind of a tried and true formula that you know works. I mean, it's it's sort of frustrating. A little while ago, I tried to pitch a series about extraordinary Pacific women to the Australian Women's Weekly, and I had a sort of a number of them, and I and there was a new editor started on the Women's Weekly who. I thought might be up for some interesting things, and she is. But in the end, she kept saying, it's the Australian Women's Weekly. It's got to be about Australian women. So I ended up writing about Elizabeth Reid, which is an interesting, fascinating story, and I'm happy I had the excuse, but there's so many others. I've got nowhere to park them. I don't know where to put them, you know, so... I'd say,
4: too, we've talked about how the media's changing, but there are so many more opportunities for stories like that now, I think. Um, You know, there's women's-focused podcasts... um, (laughs) Mamma Mia is one of the most generous audiences for our stories. Um, they're all, all, always interested. The um, Magazines, I mean, we had a story in Cleo about our work in Vanuatu and the headline was, we need to talk about periods, which like, I don't think could hope for any better. With that. mm,
1: mm, that's good to hear. Good to hear the positives as well. Um, I saw a couple more questions, I think. Um, you want to yeah. grab one here?
7: Hello. Um, My name's Gordon Peake. I'm from the ANU. Well, I started a couple of days ago, so I'm still getting used to the the (laughs) title. Um, I want to ask you a question about uh, books. Um, Joe mentioned the Linda Paulman book, and I I read that as well, and I I remember it kind of cutting cutting through with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to gush for a little bit, but I remember reading Nick's book about 30 years ago. It's this (laughs) book called Danziger's Travels, and it's about this kind of bimble through... Um, Central Asia and an interweaving of history and personal experience, and that book still sticks with me. And when I wrote my own book on East Timor and my experiences there, I remember going back and rereading um, Nick's book and just being, you know, falling in love with it again. So it's very, very nice to be in the same same room as you. Thank you. My my question is, I guess, on on the sort of books is. We've talked about the difficulty of cutting through in this environment where so much stuff is coming in on your, on your feed and the, the crisis in Australian journalism. In this space, and given that you've both written really well received and, and, you know, books, is there a space for that type of, the longest form of long-form journalism in this, in this environment? Another question, just for Sam. It's right. I mean, I remember reading Sam in the newspaper and being really taken by how provocative you were in, in your in your writings. Is there a space for someone to write provocatively about aid and development? I mean, the, let's say say the story that's getting more attention than anything this week is the Oxfam Caligula sex parties in in uh, in Haiti. I mean, you you would really struggle to get a story about Haiti, but yet that's cut through. So I guess my question from you, given you're on the sort of put your turn gatekeeper side of the fence, is there space for that type of provocative journalism in, in the aid space?
1: I think there was a couple of questions in one there, but we might just grab yours as well.
0: I guess I was, I've, um, I've chatted to Joe a few times about you know, various things in PND and... Um, it seems to me that one of the, the problems for Joe historically has been you know, difficulty getting to places to mm. actually meet people, And but I get to places, mm. so I'm quite often in P&D, for example, talking mm. to people in you know, all different contexts. Um, so I guess it's really just a question around, can there be perhaps a role for academics who are able to get that kind of in-depth <laughs> um, uh, you know, understanding to do when better. they write as well as you when they get <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. Yes. laughs> to do better to, um, in getting those stories told within the non-academic media, I guess. And mm-hmm. in a way, I mean, maybe I will challenge people that that's part of our responsibility mm-hmm. is to move beyond the metrics of yeah. um, academic publishing. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a question mm-hmm. and just a bit of a thought. Mm-hmm
1: one more in that row as well I thought
5: while we are in the row I'd uh, have a go myself Um, as you've been talking I've been thinking about just how paternalistic a lot of stories about aid are and the difficulty of like I wonder whether the audience for them dries up because it's a kind of stale um, we're helping these poor people kind of thing that loses its ability to engage people morally And then I was thinking about the Panama Papers and Oxfam's campaign against tax havens and how there was that kind of convergence of critical journalism and kind of bigger civil society campaigns and certainly here tax havens have come into our political debate so that kind of in the, like, I accept all the gloom that you've been talking about, but, but I can also see some, to be some things, things. Where, there's, where, <laughs> where there are some kind of powerful reframings and, and new constellations of players that maybe provide us with one bit of a way forward, maybe. I don't know.
1: Great. Well, quite a few things there to discuss. Books, uh, academic journalism, perhaps, and um, not being paternalistic in um, coverage of aid and development. Does anyone want to jump in on that?
2: I think it's a combination of some of these answers. I mean, the most one of, you know, in journalism, everyone will have heard of John Pilger. But, you know, his documentary films now are mainly crowdfunded. Now, he does sell them. They're expensive documentaries to make. But it's lucky he has a tremendous following here. I, I mean, in Australia, I think there's like, he has something like 150,000 followers. So, you know, if everyone's contributing, you know, a couple of dollars, he's going to have a voice. And he, he is someone who people will listen to. But, you know, he can no longer go to the BBC or to the independents and raise that kind of money. So I think that shows you how difficult it is. And when you say, you know, it, it's the Australian white woman going somewhere or, you know, the British or American, unfortunately, I think editors are so terrified about their readership. You know, they've got to hold up to the owners of the outlets that they work for that it's a vicious circle. And they're not going to take a gamble on important stories that don't have the peg that I think we've all been describing, the peg that uh, most readers will relate to. And so I think, you know, there are places for good journalism, but how many people are going to read it? Uh, You know, the New York Times is running huge deficits. It only has survived, thanks to a, a multi-billionaire Mexican philanthropist. And if we look through the media as well, that is, that is really what is taking place today. The Guardian, if any of you ever look at The Guardian, they ask you to, to donate money so that they can keep going. And so I think, yes, you can place your work, but where do you place it and get that readership? You can have a blog. What is the audience for the blog? And then I think it comes to also sort of question about the NGOs and probably you're very concerned. You know, sometimes you probably only need to have one person read your piece, and that might be the prime minister. So how do you reach the prime minister? So it, it's a, I think there's many answers to that, but I think we're all sort of coming back to the same thing is, you know, the, the landscape has changed, um, and there are many, many pressures, but ultimately it's now incredibly splintered. It's... it's there's no kind of general focus people don't pick up the sunday papers in the way they used to the young audiences just do they don't they don't read papers they don't read magazines you know and they don't you know if they're going to look at something it's usually on youtube if there's a crisis i know that from my own kids if they get their news it's because someone else has said something it's i mean facebook is is ending for young people now you know, they've gone on to Instagram. So, you know, if you want a piece read, you have to be very inventive about who is the audience you want to reach and how do you reach that audience? And I'm sure, from what you were saying, you're grappling with that.
4: Yeah, I mean, that also relates to your question about um, being provocative. Yeah, it's, 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 it is very difficult often. Um, there are lots of... When I'm writing something, say, doing an op-ed for The Herald Sun or The Daily Telegraph, There's lots of sensitivities that prevent me from writing about things that I would if I was in your role as a journalist, especially in conflict scenarios. There are lots of things that I can't say because it puts our staff in danger, and that makes it harder to tell a compelling story. Um, And, yeah, as you were saying, I mean, we speak very differently to different audiences. If I'm writing a piece for the Herald Sun, you know, I'll try and make it as relatable as possible, and Know, kind of ham up all the emotional stuff which is probably not the way that I would prefer to write it but if that means it gets published and that means Herald Sun readers are going to hear about South Sudan then then I think it's worthwhile um, and also I mean being provocative it, you need a really good spokesman for your organisation who's articulate and can um, make decisions on the fly about what issues they can push and what things they need to pull back on um yeah i mean tim costello is probably the obvious example who you know he can talk about anything um and but he he does it because he uses analogies and he he makes things relatable to the the public
1: Mm. i did just want to get back as well to that question about academic journalism it's something you know i particularly Interested in the centre, I mean, we're really frustrated often that we don't see these things get covered. And the aid profile series that we've put together, that form the shortlist of the Mitchell Humanitarian Award, is sort of our attempt to try and get some attention on some of the wonderful things that are happening in the sector that just have been overlooked yeah. elsewhere. And I know you're based, you're based involved in with um, Melbourne Uni now, and, and if you yeah. wanted to just chime in on that, Joe, is well, that a way forward? you know,
3: and the stories I was looking again at the one that Stephen wrote about the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre when I. Sent it out this morning. I mean, he said something last night about being a frustrated journalist. I said, "Thank God he wasn't a journalist. We we wouldn't have stood a chance." You know, he does terrific work, and um, and and that policy um, blog is is telling so many stories that ought to be in mainstream, and they're engagingly told. They're not written, you know, always, you know, often they're written with a in a very accessible way for a general audience. So. I think it's evolved as a really, really powerful tool sitting in a landscape where nobody else is sort of paying attention to those things. Um, And I think you're right. I mean, we need to be encouraging more academics to write. I mean, the conversation, I guess, is an example of where we've seen that shift occur. There is still, I know, from working with academics and trying to get them to translate and de-jargon their work, that it's a really long, hard slog to get them to write in that way. Um, But I recently did a... um, um, a science writing sort of masterclass for the monthly and we had two sold out sessions of people coming and nearly all of them were medical and scientific researchers who were desperate to be able to get their story re- researchers and i mean i had a couple of surgeons um former australian of the year you know like all these people turning up wanting to wanting to be able to write excessively for a general audience so obviously there's an interest in that and and Obviously, academic institutions have to find mechanisms that recognise non-traditional research writing in a way that makes it worthwhile for you to be kind of spending time on those things. um, But I think the shift needs to be even bigger than this. And and as you say, I I mean, I sit here going, I want to get to these places and tell their stories your are in location, but not just you. There's Martin Namorong, you know, hammering, telling us what's happening in his neighbourhood. And there is um, Scott Wade and all these reporters who are in place. And yet there is still this resistance for us to hear people's stories from their own journalists and from their own mouths. And it's the conditioning, I guess, that my generation had that we needed the... The outsider to stroll into the landscape and to explain the complexity and kind of cut through the local sort of you know um, issues and give us an honest assessment of what was actually going on in terms that we could understand as an audience. But that person doesn't exist in the landscape anymore. There are not um, very few, with the exception of you not know, like the exceptional Sally Sara and a couple of others, and we've still got Eric left in PNG, the last man standing. Um, so, But there are very few um, resident uh, correspondents who have the opportunity to learn language, to learn the nuances of a culture, to kind of understand the landscape of who's doing what to who, where they are there. They're vulnerable sometimes to being chucked out if they start to tell true stories about some of those things. Um, so we rely now on the parachute journalist, and I'm a serial parachutist, I guess, and I have deep qualms about that practice, I do it thinking, surely something is better than nothing, but now I'm starting to sit back and wonder well, is that actually true as a philosophical question? Doing something if it's not, if I'm not there often enough to understand it, if I don't have the networks. I mean, PNG is different because I've done it often enough now that I've, I've got some level of knowledge to work from, but if I dropped into Tonga, where I haven't been, or, um, you know, parts of you know, Central, South America or whatever, you know, to assume that I can tell that story, is, um, which I've done many times in the past, is still in many ways such an arrogant and um, wrong-headed thing, and yet that's the business. But, um, but in the past, we did rely on resident correspondents. They've gone, so how do we train up, support local journalists, local bloggers, local storytellers, and give them some authority and recognition in what they do?
1: I wanted to move on to, to thinking about what we can do, as I definitely didn't want us to just talk for most of the session about how terrible everything is. And I think that that um, is a good point to raise. Like, what what could the NGO and development sector be doing more to
4: empower local
1: voices and to, to bring those forward? Is, is there more we could be doing?
4: Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, it, one of the you know, care is moving in a direction where we're having more, more local... Well, we have a high rate of local staff, but also we're working a lot more through partner agencies rather than having care on the ground. So in the case of Tonga, we're working with uh, Live and Learn and it's all <coughs> national staff, which is great from a development perspective, but it makes it a lot harder from a media perspective because, you know, Australian audiences want to... It's a lot easier to relate to an Australian describing the situation um and from a fundraising perspective you know I'm happy to put out our partner agency to do media but it's not going to lead to any donations like it's hard to see how it's going to help in a bigger sense
1: so we just need to be like stop being so terrible as human beings <laughs> Is
2: <that> the,
4: <laughs> open up our minds a
1: bit more and I mean how do we do that with these audiences does anyone have any thoughts on that Like, how do we get people to be open to a different range of views
2: I think think what we shouldn't ignore is also training. I mean, I run workshops. For the last five years, I've been running a workshop in visual storytelling and and advocacy in Myanmar, a couple of weeks' time in the Philippines. And some have never picked up a video camera. The dedication, the talent, the commitment. I mean, they sleep on the floor because it's been yangon. It would take them an hour and a half to get home. They needed to finish the edit. And they do produce amazing stories with a call to action. It's a whole... And the, the greatest thing is it's, it's for their own audience and to motivate their own people to come to, to their own solutions. So I think that's also very, very important, that, again, you know, it's not us going in. And, and I, over and over again on different continents, I see how they can have the tools. Nowadays, I mean, we don't yet run courses with smartphones, but eventually we'll be able to run courses where they can... Produce those films, film on the smartphone, edit on the smartphone, upload them on the smartphone. They are connected often to the Facebook. One of the greatest changes has been the access to mobile phones, even in North Korea. And uh, I think we shouldn't ignore that, that many people want to also come to their own solutions without foreigners deciding what is right or wrong for them, even if it has been in Consultations. I would say that is very, very positive, and I think you know when when I see the numbers of people who apply to be on those workshops, you can see that there's a real desire for them to produce, that you want to have the skills to produce uh, the necessary um, outcomes or media uh, uh, tools to to motivate and inspire their own people to affect uh, change. Mm-hmm.
4: I'd agree with that. Um, NGOs they need to invest in, in that type of training for communications. It's not always a popular way to spend money. But, again, in the case of the cyclone that uh, has hit Tonga, if, if we can get our staff to take photos or video on their phone and get it out, that gives us a, a much better shot of getting media attention on the story. Um, and it, doesn't, yeah, it just requires a small amount of training, but there's not always the willingness to, to put money there.
2: I was going to ask you for your visiting card. I was going to say, looking always for funding as we all are.
1: I feel like the overarching message is please give us all money. <laughs> but um, I did also, oh sorry, it was. I yeah. I sorry
0: fantastic conversation with my 15 year old the other night who was telling me how he reads al jazeera and all these other things and he said it's because i want to know what i don't know so i think that we've got to think of those young people Mm. and that they have been saturated in a world of clicking and clicking and they're Mm. all many of them are getting to the point where they Mm. they want to know what they don't know Mm. so i think that's you know just an encouraging thing to yeah,
1: mm. And I think, Sam, you mentioned before things like podcasts and some of these new emerging modes of consuming media, streaming, like online video and things like that. I mean, I know all the NGOs and everyone working in the sectors all over social media now, but are these new areas that we should be trying to look more at for impact?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it is, yeah, it, it, it is hard. We do We do see when we have something on 7pm news, there's a very big Cause an effect result. Right. It's a lot harder when we um, put resources into getting coverage of some of the niche publications. It's, it's a lot harder to, to measure. Mm.
1: Yeah. Right, so perhaps something for the future, but at the moment this, the, the real winners are still with yeah, the main broadcast media.
4: And I think on a more optimistic mm-hmm. note, I think in this era of fake news, there's more of a willingness... Well, it seems like a, a lot of news outlets, New York Times... Um, Fairfax uh, actually putting more focus on um, quality journalism. City um, Morning Herald's recently done a redesign to emphasise international news. Um, so I mean, yeah, maybe in this climate, quality journalism is, is being recognised, and hopefully more people are prepared to pay for it.
3: Well, we've had the Trump bump, famously, and you know the number of subscriptions for the New York Times and New Yorker and Wash Post has been, you know, astounding. So you, there has been sort of a kickback effect where people want the world explained to them. Um, but there are newsrooms that still have some resources to be doing that job. The problem is that that bump hits us. They're still you, what, you, what you look at is still looking pretty thin as a result of the hollowing out over so many years. But there were a couple of quick. I don't know how we're going for time, but you asked about books. Um, and just from my knowledge of, of that here, again, a bit of a hiding to nothing in that um, a book pitch in this country, you'd be lucky if you know, the sort of things that we're talking about... You might get a $25,000, $30,000 advance if you're really, really lucky, but you'll never get anything else out of the book because it just will not sell the copies to get across the line unless you can somehow get Nick Rewalt or somebody, a footballer, into your narrative um, and bump up the Father's Day sales. Um, but, you know, that's, that's so if you're working for six months or eight months to produce, a, you know, and you think you might even need a year to produce and edit a good quality book, let alone you're travelling, you, you can see the problem. You're going to have to find another way to pay for that work. Um, that said, I think, you know, it's, it's you know, the, obviously there is a hunger for that. You know, people, people engage in, in long form, they engage in narrative, they really love rich storytelling and I think that's, part, again, sort of a consequence of um, the, the, the shallow pool um, as a result of the, uh, the media breakdown and people sort of looking at other ways to find um, deeper storytelling and, and then you've got the long form kind of kicking off from that. Which kind of comes to the paternalistic thing too, which again, paternalistic storytelling and that kind of shallow, once-over, lightly, is what happens when you don't spend time on the ground and you don't engage and find a deeper narrative. And um, quite recently, I was I did a little review, but I was reading the book Martha, um, Monica Minigal, and Peter Dwyer have done on their work um, over twenty-five years in um, Juhar and at sort of the edge of the, the 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 LNG zone and I've sort of kicked around that story a few times over the years and then I'm reading what the reality of what of of the lives the culture the stories and thinking the fact that I even walk in these communities and ask what is your name and and how old are you I've already caused a cultural affront you know (laughs) um so it's sort of that, that not knowing um and and now I if I knew a bit more, if I had a bit more time, if I if I did interview more people and, and was able to get behind the first wave of people that want to tell me a particular kind of story and it suits me and it suits my editor and off we go, then that's when you begin to tell these lovely, rich, non-paternalistic stories. But they just require time that nobody's got.
2: To, so. do, you, do you have a, a crowdsourcing book platform?
3: Um, there are around. UK has one yeah. called
2: Unbound, which is very, yeah. very successful.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and I've got I've had a um, a colleague, a, a photographer, who um, used Kickstarter to pay for a book of, of photographs from from PNG, so that you know it's around.
1: So, yeah, we've got a question up the back. Try and um, keep your questions brief because we are getting tight on time now. Yeah, sure.
6: It's Mark Moran from University of Queensland. I'm certainly born out of my own experience. I've I've written a book around frontline development work in Indigenous affairs. Is the point when the um, editor told me that I had to write myself in and actually write the characters in. And I, I just reflected upon that. And I think that that's something that maybe is across our sector. I mean, to be a good development worker you know you sort of have to make yourself invisible and um, but to make it a much more compelling story you've got to put yourself in the story and you've got to and we also tend to be careful about protecting um, you know um, the people that we're working with I suppose or doing that operating in a very ethical way so maybe we're a little reluctant to name characters and really Um, develop characters, which makes for a compelling read. I just don't know if if Mm. that's my own experience. I don't know if people wanted to comment on that. And if if, if that's the case, then we've got to get over that. Mm. Otherwise, we're never going to sell the stories.
1: Mm. It actually ties in... We've got another one down here, um, Andrew, but I'll let you get down there first Um, into something that I wanted to bring up with the panel, which is to sort of ask them what is really annoying about working with NGOs for the journalists? Like, I know that sometimes there's this fixation on the positive stories where you might want to go into other issues. Is that, along with what Mark just mentioned, some of the challenges of working with NGOs and development agencies on stories, or, um, yeah, how do you find it? Give us a review. Tell us how we can do better.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sam. I can tell you what I've heard from journalists who I pitch to. Mm. So, um, LAUGHTER But, I mean, one of the things that NGOs... Well, NGOs do a few things badly, and I try not to do these things, Mm -hmm. but swamping journalists with stories they're never going to cover. Like, just stick to a good one and make a good pitch to a journo who's actually interested in that issue. Um, And when doing itineraries for uh, field visits, NGOs tend to put a list together of, like, the best... Oh, sorry, the best of their agency, and they run through, you know... 10 different things in one day going to each project, which doesn't make a compelling story. Um, In the case of Sally Sara's story we did in Somaliland, um, which created an itinerary that created like a full picture of the story and we made sure that we spent half a day at a a hospital and the hospital wasn't um, a care hospital. We had a relationship with the hospital, but that was it. And yeah, we dedicated a half a day to that hospital so she could find those personal stories... And find her, you know, she, and her ultimate story ended up being, you know, three minutes on just the hospital. And it had a huge impact with the audience.
1: And how about you, Nick, and Joe? What well, I, I mean, I been? think
2: if, if, if I'm approached, usually they know what my interests are, what my strengths are. Uh, so, usually, on the rare occasions that it happens, it's usually a very good working relationship. Uh, if anything, they want to show me too much and, and I usually say, "No, I want to spend the time that I have in one location uh, and really get to grips with that so that, that but I would say that the generally speaking it 's very positive, um, but then you know when it comes to editing, it depends what the uses are etc so it 's not just being in the field it 's then how is that work used in my case i don 't allow my images to be cropped, etc et etc, et so there can be quite a lot of tension over how the images are used and the issues of informed consent and sometimes you take very, very difficult images which, uh, you know, some people will criticise me for or attack me and that's very hurtful and damaging because they were not taken with those intentions.
3: Mm. I've found probably the the best working relationship I've had um, with NGOs has been usually and my preferred model is i get myself to wherever it is that i want to go and i want to tell my story and then i'll you know but i'll have spoken to somebody that's got a you know a partner agency you know up near WeWAC that that are doing work with communities around you know tree forest stealing and tree stealing or whatever and they will help me locate those people so i haven't cost them to get me there i get myself there under my own steam but then and I'll usually put fuel in their vehicle and pay for phone calls and things like that so that I can sort of square off but if it means that I get access particularly to local or, or people that have been on on you know in country for a long time and get that knowledge that can be really useful and that kind of I think works both ways um, but I'm not beholden um, but at the same time I'm getting the benefit of deep experience and relationships that that you have worked on as as in and that's another thing I also understand though too that I can't come crashing in and say I'm sorry I'm really not interested in talking to the chief or you know bowing to the mullah or whatever it is I just want my story because if I'm doing that with NGOs or agencies that have had to negotiate those relationships and develop those relationships my bullet a gate approach may well undo so much important so I have to understand like I understand if I go into a village I've got to you know may I come in, am I allowed to come here, um, who, who do I need to talk to about getting access and understanding in PNG, that might mean a lot of meetings. <laughs> and in Nigeria, I mean, you know, to get the polio story, we spent hours and hours with mullahs and, and the emirs, you know, princelings, and knowing... And I had a journalist with me, a Canadian, who it drove him nuts and he kept screaming, just let us out at the story, and I'm going, well, this is the story... You know, it's about these relationships. You can't get polio into these communities unless you have the trust of these people and their engagement. And our job isn't to undo that. So suck it up and sit down, you know. So... so. But that sort of... You know, if I had an editor banging on my head saying you've got to file every day, I wouldn't have had that luxury. So it's about understanding, I guess, what we both, what we both want and how we can navigate in a way that's going to look after both of our interests and me understanding... The tensions and issues that you face, and and you understanding, you know, why I need to be given space to tell my story, and you
8: might want to look the other way sometimes. So,
1: mm-hmm. we do have another question. I think.
8: Oh, Michelle's coming. Mm-hmm. So I'm Michelle, and thank you for such a frank conversation <laughs> about this. And I'm coming back to my questions, linking again media and aid. Yeah, and I'm, I keep thinking of the Papua New Guinea escape, and two issues that have been sort of striking me a lot is gen- the violence narrative and sorcery narrative which, mm. which the international audience has an appetite for, especially the Papua New Guinea um, side and, but at the same time it's a space that um, Australian aid is very, very heavily invested in. Mm. So one of the things in my mind is there is, a, there is actually an argument for media funding in this space and especially to move it from that glaring front-page narrative to that more nuanced, what can be done to support mm. um, a service. So there's—I I always think there's a there is actually an argument for aid to be channeled towards supporting media in, in some of these spaces, mm. especially PNG. And the other one was Joe, your comment about the local journalists and the. And I, I also think there must be some collab, um, r- room for great collaboration, and I, because I often watch these great friendships on social media between local journalists, and you mm. call yourself um, mm. Drop Parachute. Parachute, there yeah. are. There's this nice. Um, to me, just watching, there's mm. nice. There's nice scope there for collaboration because. I often think that local journalists must get fatigued if you're having to deal with violence and sorcery Mm. every day and the trauma of it Mm. and having somehow a space to let that be communicated internationally. So don't lose hope, don't give up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we also had another question, just your neighbour there. Thank you. Um, You've talked lots about telling um, hard-to-tell stories from hard-to-reach places, which is fascinating. I'm interested in your reflections on the related story about aid in the Australian media or in the in the Western media generally, and aid effectiveness. And we talk, we, the, the kind of questions that were raised in the last of the three-minute uh, pitches before the break, that we talked about the fact that the Oxfam story has really grabbed the media attention this week, and clearly that's shining a light on an issue that seriously needs to be addressed but at the same time it's very easily easily hijacked by by um a a media that wants to that, that doesn't believe in aid and wants to get rid of it and it easily fuels that narrative and how do we counter that narrative and how do we not do that on the back foot which it seems is what we're doing great questions there, I think. Joe, did you want to start on the on Michelle's
3: question? I guess that was part of my argument when I started trying to rattle the tin with the NGOs, saying if you want a more literate, sort of aid literate um, uh, receptive sort of audience, we need to be having, you know, doing reporting that's not necessarily branded around the issues and the complexities of, you know, how aid works, what works, what doesn't, what the benefits are. Um, and there is, I mean, what's happened is that because there are very few reporters left, I mean Dan Flitton used to write a lot in this space and now he's working for a think tank and still doing important work but it's not inside the mainstream media. Um, I used to do a fair bit of it um, before me at the age Pam Bone did uh, a lot of this sort of reporting but there's not that many and I think now Helen Davidson I think from the Guardian but there's there's a handful of people that are interested in how aid works and how development works and are kind of interested in writing those narratives but um, very few which is why every year come budget time or whatever you'll get the classic news-limited treatment of, look at the rubbish that they're spending your money on, you know, lesbian surfboard riders or whatever it is, you know. So we, that was that was one that they picked out one here in the past. <laughs> um, but it'll, there'll always be something that they'll, you know, this is a disgrace. How can this possibly be good? And, and of course, people in the development space will know that there's, there's all sorts of, you know, reasons and maybe there are some, you know, dodgy projects, but there are also a rationale sometimes around those programs that is not immediately apparent and, and you know... and. To me, that's why I'm, I'm kind of deeply frustrated that there's not... And I know Sam says the budgets are really tight, the competition's tight. I get that. But I also think that you, you are... By not finding a way to kind of um, help mainstream reporters um, understand these issues and explore them independently that you will never build that level of literacy and understanding to kind of, so that you have a really um, wholesome, interesting, vigorous public debate about what we ought to be spending on aid and what it ought to be. And, 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 you know, and instead it's corralled in places like this but doesn't get out in the world.
1: So. I mean, for us, just to touch on that as well, I mean, it's a huge frustration. We do all this work and analysis on aid effectiveness. I mean, then the budget comes out and everyone just calls us for budget quotes and then we don't hear from them again for another year. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's frustrating. Like, there's definitely people who are willing to really take the time to engage and explain, but that interest barrier and also a time barrier, I think, the many journalists in newsrooms is a problem. And the churn, mm. like, the new people coming in all the time in the industry now, and they're all very... often very green and new, straight out of uni or limited experience, and so you don't... Get the chance to build those relationships in that context, or to build up the knowledge in, a, in an interested reporter mm. over time.
4: I, don't know. But I think we have a responsibility to identify the next crop. I mean, um, Adam Gatrell has been writing lots of stuff on um, aid and development issues for um, Fairfax, mm. um, and also, you know, where it's possible, I think taking a journalist um, to the field that that's how they start getting interested. And if they have a personal interest, that's going to flow on to their reporting. And it's hard to do, but there are ways to do it. There are sometimes um, Bill and Litigates funded things, Campaign for Australian Aid funded things, or even um, there have been times where uh, a journos joined uh, one of those kind of junkets announcing aid or something, and they've tacked on another couple of days. And with that, we've been able to show them some of our work. Mm I mean, in terms of selling aid, everyone has a different opinion, but I think one thing that we don't really do enough is tapping into that kind of patriotism and showing, you know, what impact Australia is having. Like, it's a bit cheesy, but it it works. And if the commercial outlets are still interested in that story, if we can help them show you, like, you know, Aussie innovation or whatever it might be.
2: Well, I, I, I mean, just to relate to Oxfam and what you said about your budgets, I mean, I think ideally it shouldn't be the NGO funding it. These, you know, Fairfax should be funding the, the, the visit because it's independent. And I think what we, we've shortchanged the general public, I think I don't need to tell all of you, aid and development is very complex. And I don't think by showing happy kids or starving kids does anyone a service. And if we don't get the long-form journalism with informed reporters who prepare to spend the time in the field and then have the space in whatever media outlet, I think this is tragic. And what's particularly tragic for me, having worked with some organizations, Oxfam is one of the few agencies that did spend a lot of money on advocacy. But, you know, try and raise money uh, for people to take um, uh, trained, highly sophisticated, educated mainly people from the north, into ministries in Afghanistan to talk about gender. Who's going to give the money to do that? And that's the tragedy, is that I think uh, without governments changing policy and without sophisticated journalism, how can we educate people to understand that, as John Dunn would say, no man is an island. We're all in this together. And that, you know, if it's bad for people elsewhere in the world, it's going to end up, causing uh, an imbalance and whether it's refugees or migrants or whatever we will always suffer the kickback and sadly I think today that's the problem is that we the media aren't taken seriously I think what uh, aid and development can do is no longer seen as something attractive or something that should be funded and we don't have enough space to defend that as being a really important aspect of the fact that you know I think all of us probably feel pretty lucky that We were either born here or managed to get here to a place where we don't have many of those issues that uh, are the difference between life and death.
1: I think political leadership that you're touching on is something that frustrates us all greatly because I do think that that also would open up more space in the media for coverage of these issues if there was more of a degree of leadership from...
2: Well, journalism can lead people. You know, governments change policy because, you know, the press, in theory, can, can bring pressure to bear. But I don't see that in recent history as being... I mean, there are not that many John Pilgers that, that had that effect certainly in the past, I but, believe.
3: And, but I also think part of, the, part of the disruption being now that we all live in our media silo and so we are getting this curated version of the world with the issues that interest us means I think that's part of the diminishment of sort of the media... Um, being able to ha- be effective because you're always singing to the choir of your own audience mm-hmm. and I got some crowdfunding a couple of years ago to Ma- to go to Manus and um one of the things that one of the people that dispensed that money a very senior um, um uh, Australian journalist publisher said can you please please try and get these stories somewhere unexpected get them into News Limited get them into Mamma Mia get them somewhere else Please, not the Monthly and the Guardian Bleeding Hearts again. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> they ended up in the Monthly and the Guardian <laughs> Bleeding Hearts. And it wasn't that I didn't try. I did try to get them placed anywhere, somewhere else. And, um, and in fact, I got a long way down the track with Mamma Mia. Um, but in the end, I asked them for two things. One was a guarantee that it would get a run and... And somebody said, well, look, if it's a big day on The Bachelor, you might suffer, you know. Yeah. So, and the other thing I said, I want a nominal payment so that you have skin in this game. I know that I've, I've got my... my the crowd funding has paid for my, my visa, my travel, my 10 days on the island, a photographer I'm taking with me, but you need to pay me something so that I know you've got skin in the game and that this is value. That's the other thing, that we are make, we're making what we produce valueless. And without those two things, and I, I think I asked for a thousand bucks, but but without the guarantee of not being trumped by the Bachelor and the thousand dollars, it fell over. So that's the and and News Limited—they just see my name, and it's not going to happen. So you know, <laughs> so there's those sorts of fracturing. I don't know how we cut out of the silo because it, I think the power of the press in the old days was that you opened up the paper and you saw something confronting that did not sit with your view of the world and. And now probably the only place you might get that news is on ABC radio news, where you still get a flow of the news in, curated according to its importance in that moment by a team of experts. But even that now is maybe going to
1: diminish. I hate to have to bring this to a close. Yes, I feel like yeah. I'm <laughs> part of the problem, though, because I do watch The Bachelor sometimes. we <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so should all examine <laughs> our own news <laughs> <use> consumption, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> Feel like I went on a Kylie Jenner binge in the lead up to this conference, <laughs> um, but I think there's—we touch on so many different things, and I'd love to keep discussing them further. But definitely, do feel free to talk to our panelists um, uh, now that we're closing. But since I gave the timekeeping warning, we do have to wrap up. Did you just want to make any quick closing remarks? I think or I said we're... enough? All good. Yeah,
2: think...
1: <laughs> All right. Well, join with me in thanking our panelists. Been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media.